Welcome to Dyslexics Wanted, celebrating the unique strengths and creativity so often the hallmark of people with dyslexia. I'm Jordan Rich, and the Web Innovation Center for Dyslexia invites you to join us on the podcast. If you or someone you care about has a story to tell, we'd consider featuring it right here on Dyslexics Wanted. So before we get started with today's show, send us your story. Email me directly. Jordan, that's J-O-R-D-A-N, at chartproductions, C-H-A-R-T productions.com, or you can call and leave a message, 781-356-1500. Again, 781-356-1500. Our guest today is Dr. Sarah J. Ranzuli. She's a visiting assistant professor in the Counselor Education and Counselor Psychology Program, the Department of Educational Psychology in the NEAG School of Education at the University of Connecticut. She's also, as you're going to hear, a very articulate and bright woman who dealt with difficulties that so many with dyslexia have as a young student. We recently heard an enlightening podcast with Sarah on a website called Bright and Quirky, which is an online program for parents with exceptional students and those with learning disabilities such as dyslexia. First off, Sarah, tell us what you had to say on that podcast, and the fact that we heard it is why you're here. Welcome. So Debbie Steinberg who uh, is the founder and runs Bright and Corky, um, reached out to me uh, after learning about my work and my personal experiences from Susan Baum, who was at uh, Bridges Academy. You know, Debbie was interested, I, I think, in my perspective for two reasons. One is that I um, study and work with uh, individuals who have dyslexia and or are twice exceptional at the secondary and post-secondary level, but also, you know, I am someone who, you know, is gifted and learning disabled, and, you know, I have a a very unique story, and I've uh, experienced a lot of kind of ups and downs academically, but ultimately overcame a lot to, you know, get my doctorate and now work in higher education. Mm. And by the way, you come from a, a lineage that has to do with helping children and helping adults. Your father is a very well-respected and very well thought of uh, educator and counselor, is he not? Thank you. Yes. Um, you know, both my parents are, uh, you know, very well-known professors in the field of gifted education um, you know, my father is really considered one of the the top living educational theorists in the world in his you know area, and um, I think that it was you know I think what was probably so interesting about my story is that I literally lived you know grew up with two education experts, mm-hmm. and yet the complexities of being uh, gifted but also learning disabled is that my parents struggled to recognize my learning disability because I was also gifted. So I, I, it's called masking. I masked it essentially Mm. for them for a long time. So, um, you know, and I think that what really occurred to them and it actually spurred my mom to open up an entire new line of research professionally for her. But if two education experts, you know, didn't see some of the signs of a learning disability, how are others supposed to recognize it? And, you know, I think that was one question. And then I think another question was, what do you do for this? How mm. you have to, you have to serve and treat both the giftedness and the learning disability. So what's the best course of action? Right. Well, one would think that the two couldn't possibly go hand in hand. The big misconception, the big lie is that people with learning disabilities are quote unquote ignorant or well, dumb. Uh, yeah. dumb. They can't learn. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And that's, um, you know, I went to school in the 90s, and that was the perception. Learning disability equals dumb. Mm -hmm. So 
when you're this uh, when you're considered twice exceptional, you're very. It's a very mixed. Uh, everything in life is mixed mm. and confusing because, on the one hand, you know you're smart, and then on the other hand, you're being told you're dumb. You know, maybe not that directly. Mm-hmm. So it's very confusing. You don't know academically where you fit in. You don't know socially where you fit in. You don't know. You know why do you get really complex things, and yet maybe you can't. You know, you're not good at a specific subject. So there's a lot of there's a lot of complexities that go along with the diagnosis or the label, and um, it's becoming much more. Uh, there are so many more conversations happening about it now that were not even in the realm of possibility when I was going to school. And that's not um, that long ago. That's only in the 90s, not far back. Yeah. yeah. But the, the conversations have changed so much. Hmm. Um, you know, disability, having a disability or being a little bit different is not as taboo. I think the struggle that exists now is that there is still a disability-first mentality. Mm-hmm. So I felt for the majority of my secondary education that I was identified as someone with a disability, not an, not individual first. So not, this is Sarah, these are Sarah's interests. This is someone with a disability, and that's all we are going to think about. When schools typically want to treat or help the disability, they only look at the deficit areas. They don't look at the strength areas. One of my weaker areas is um, mathematics. I am never, ever going to be a mathematician, a calculus major, or anything else. So what the school tried to do or tries to do is make you proficient in the deficit area, which they need to for different standards, and I understand that. But I think that they need to devote as much energy into building up my strengths areas because ultimately that's what I should be focusing on for higher education and a career. Right. Can I ask you at this point in our discussion yeah. here, what were those gifted areas? What, what did you shine in? Absolutely. You know, verbal my verbal, uh, my verbal comprehension is, you know, in a, a very superior range on my testing. My ability to, you know, again, com- verbally com- verbal interactions, comprehension, anal- kind of a really anything oral or verbal analysis. Mm-hmm. You know, I do have classic dyslexia, so sometimes I will struggle with decoding a word, but if it's read to me. I understand anything and, again, can usually manipulate the content to explain it very clearly back. My performance IQ uh, is, is, uh, would show more of my weaker areas. And um, I think, again, that in, to this day in dealing with students with learning disabilities, schools focus too much on the deficit areas. You're very adept at interpreting things orally and obviously verbally you're extremely adept. And this was you in high school and in previous years. Yeah, this was me from right. fifth grade on. So I was okay. I was identified in fifth grade. And um, I, you know, I don't think obviously at fifth grade you understand, you know, the difference between, you know, the, your different IQs and what the, the testing means. But I think that it, it explained a lot. You know, yeah. uh, it probably explained why I could, if someone explained a complex concept or an idea to me, I got it. But if I had to read it, I struggled more. So that puts you so, and others in a very tight position, a very precarious one, because as we all know, people make fun of the quote unquote egghead to begin with. And they also make fun, sadly enough, of those who are struggling. It's like a, a catch-22. It, it, it 
definitely can be. I think, again, um, it, there are so many different conversations happening about this now, but there, um, you know, Jonathan Mooney just published a new book and it's called, um, I think normal, it's called normal sucks. And I, it's interesting because it sort of says who, uh, you know, what is normal, what is normal in school and why, you know, we're trying to compare everyone to this or, or have everyone conform to this norm that is a little bit of a, a, a mythological creature. So, you know, obviously we need norms to identify, you know, weaknesses or exceptionalities. But we also, um, I think that, again, I think trying to shift the conversation to more, to more acceptance of differences. And I think that that comes with, you know, in the classroom, teachers being more open to different ways of approaching assignments, different ways of approaching content. Not, you know, not that, again, not everyone's going to fit in one box Did you mentality. Did you develop, and if so, maybe you can describe what this was like for you, develop your own sort of little defense mechanisms to get you through the school day, to deal with taunting, uh, to deal with teachers who may not have been so understanding? Did you have any way of coping in the moment? Sarah? Yeah, you have different ways of coping in the moment um, at different levels. In elementary school, I tried to avoid um, reading class, so I would go to the nurse every day at the same time and just kind of chat with the nurse. You know, I'd make up some ailment. Or the other thing that I did in elementary school is I memorized probably five to ten children's books. Like, I I knew when to turn the pages and stuff. So I'd fake, you know, that I was reading. I, you know, I'd go to the nurse. I'd go to the bathroom. I'd I'd do pretty much anything to... uh, not be in reading class specifically then uh as i got older i think you know when you get into you know so there's a point at which again your giftedness my giftedness hid my disability for a long time and then at a point when the content became more challenging and i couldn't hide anymore that's when a lot of individuals with uh twice exceptionality kind of just want to become invisible they don't want to stick out they don't want to you know, you want to just fade into the background and not have any attention put on you. A lot of times, you, you even even though it, it hurts, you lower your academic standards because you don't want attention drawn to the mm-hmm. fact that you don't understand things. So probably in seventh grade, that became more apparent for me because my, uh, my understanding and abilities in math really started to get challenged. So I... Um, you know, I basically started accepting lower math grades because I didn't want to be, I didn't want the teacher to say, you know, to call me out and say, what's going on there? Why don't you get this? What what are you doing? You know, I think that, that you sort of just, you even kind of become say, oh, well, I, I, you know, I didn't do my homework. I didn't do this. Even if I spent hours agonizing over it, you don't mm-hmm. want to be called out for not understanding. You'd almost rather be called out for it. It's it's kind of interesting as I talk to you, and you're very bright and, and so nice to talk to us and share with us your story. One of the exceptional things about people like you is you're smart and can figure out ways around problems. But in this case, you're figuring out a way around an issue that uh, is ultimately, you know, hurting you from moving forward. I mean, you're trying to cover for something that you're embarrassed about. And, exactly. you, f- and you figured out great ways to do it because you are so yeah. clever. Yeah. Exactly. And again, a lot of times, you know, in in seventh, eighth, even ninth grade, I was smart enough that you could say I, you could put on the persona of, 
even though I cared immensely about academics, I faked it in the classes I was bad at because I would rather be considered a lazy student than not smart. Exactly. That was an easier mentality for me to accept. Yeah. I, in high school, I was pretty severely depressed as a lot of students, a lot of students with any form of learning disability experience high level, or, or there is a high comorbidity with high levels of anxiety, depression, social anxiety, uh, among other mental health issues. And I think that, that, I think that, that, you know, again, just made me very withdrawn. I think that, again, I was, I was always known as, you know, it was like a disability first mentality. And I think at the time, you know, going into a class, teachers were like, oh God, what do I have to do to get this kid through? And I think it, a lot of times you felt more like a burden and definitely not like people wanted to help or were interested. I think that, you know, there was not, again, it, it was in some ways a long time ago, in some ways not that long ago, but um, there was not the understanding there is today about the spectrum of disabilities. There was, you know, I remember my IEP PPT meetings were so negative. Mm -hmm. Everything was about what I couldn't do. Mm -hmm. And yet there was also this other side to me that was very creative and had a lot of interest. But I think when you just focus on someone's deficit, they really do get beaten down. So high school, you know, my first two years of high school were a complete disaster. I, a lot of times I would fake sick, come home. I would, uh, you know, I started out in fall college, advanced, you know, a, a kind of, college preparatory advanced or the higher track classes because everything was tracked back then and within a month of entering ninth grade they had moved me down to everything and they continued moving me down so you know my high school essentially said you know you're not college material I couldn't test well they they had no, just such a lack of understanding about disabilities and let me ask you this at this point, your parents, and we alluded to your father, Joseph, yeah. and your mother, too, both of whom very well respected and both very skilled in the field of education and psychology. How did they help and did they intervene enough to uh, to make suggestions, to offer assistance, to my, guide them? My parents had to be, I li they literally had to be pit bulls. So they had to, um, they were at, they were calling the school nonstop. They were calling my teachers, my special ed teacher. They were at my PPT meeting. I probably had more PPT or IEP meetings, excuse me, than any other kid. They would bring experts to them. Um, they would beg them to build development or, you know, create kind of creative opportunities into my plan. But it just, there was kind of just this lack of, there was just like, well, what are we going to do about her math scores, her reading scores? There was like this mentality that the school couldn't get out of its own way. They didn't want to try anything new. So after my sophomore year, I just, I couldn't go back. I was literally like, I will, uh, it, it was just like I was being crushed. I don't even know how else to describe it. So I, um, I went to a private boarding school and um, it was interesting because, you know, the smaller class sizes really saved me. I got to participate in discussions. You know, in public school, when I was put in all the low-level classes, really the only thing that happens in there is um, behavior issues. And mm. I didn't necessarily become part of that, but I didn't do anything academically all day. It seems as though this is a trend and a theme that I've encountered in my 
discussions with people on this wonderful podcast, and that is a lot of frustration in the early days. But how did it change, if at all, when you entered uh, higher ed? And now, of course, you're well-respected in the field. Tell us about it. Thank you. I think that there's different levels of, you come to a different level of acceptance. When you first get diagnosed, whatever age, you don't understand what all those big words mean, and heck, you probably can't read it. But I think that there's a few things to remember. I don't know what it's like to live without my disability, my learning disability. So this is normal to me. It's just not normal to everyone else. So I think that you come to different levels of understanding and acceptance. I think that the times that it is most apparent that you may learn differently are times that sometimes you're angry, you don't get it, you don't understand this. And then I think that as you go on more, you begin to see, okay, I learn a little bit differently, but that that doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing. It's really important, I think, to find your niche and things you're good at. So growing up, I did ballet. That was a really great outlet for me. It had nothing to do with the fact that I struggled with reading and I struggled, you know, with numbers. I got to express myself that way. Uh, In high school, I had one or two kind of clubs or something that were an outlet for me that I really enjoyed. In college, you know, I, I was a history major. I got history. It didn't matter that, you know, I, again, struggled with science, traditional sciences as much. I think that, again, you come to, as you understand your disability more, and you live with it longer, you begin to understand how, how and what it, it will be, how it's going to be part of you. And it doesn't have to be a negative force every day. In fact, you know, I think I see things from a different perspective a lot of times. I think I'm more creative than a lot of people. And I think that you kind of come to, again, an acceptance, an acceptance and a, a version of this is how it's going to sort of play out in my life. And again, I think it's also you come to, you know, now, you know, in my 30s, I can say I don't like to call it a disability. I have a learning difference. But I think it's, again, I've, you know, after college, I didn't really know what I was going to do. So I took a marketing job in New York. Wasn't very good at it, but um, it, it was an experience. And when the market crashed, I decided I wanted to go back to grad school, but I didn't know for what. And I very much like counseling and working uh, the idea of helping others. And I met my advisor, my major advisor for my master's and doctorate, Dr. Orth Karen. And I also studied under Dr. Jim O'Neill. And they both had a really big interest in special education. I think as I started to study special education, I just became so much more attuned to probably my own experiences. And I'd be able to put them in a context, almost examine what I went through. I think that that was really uh, kind of a turning point in terms of, okay, so I understand my disability probably in a different way now, and I think that that's been helpful, and it's also probably helped me talk to others about their experiences. Well, you're a shining example of what term you used, a learning difference. It's not a disability. It, It is what it is, but it's also a different way to learn, to pattern, to become successful, and that is certainly where you are. I just want to bring it back to what we talked about at the very beginning, and that is the connection that in this case is palpable between gifted, very smart, very creative students, you, prime example, and the fact that many people who are gifted, also happen to have dyslexia or other learning differences. And this is something that uh, if it catches on, that people can finally get that, 
then we'll have achieved our purpose, which is to destigmatize this whole thing. Yeah, I mean, I think that any person who figures out how to successfully navigate, you know, having uh, a learning difference possesses also some sort of giftedness because they've had to figure out, you know, different ways to do things that are often more creative or a little bit. But I think there's a very high correlation between on paper having what we're calling a learning difference, but also being, again, much more creative, probably having a a very intense interest in one particular thing. Sometimes it's known as a hyper-focus. And I think that, again, I think the biggest harm that can be done is not allowing these individuals the freedom to explore and find their interests and passions. You know, I, um, you know, certain things are challenging. And there's, I'm not going to sugarcoat that. I think that if you plan your educational program correctly, there can, you can be set individuals with learning differences up for immense success. You are a prime example of someone who's gone through it. You've gone through the trenches. And by yeah. sharing your story and doing the kind of work you do professionally, the pathway uh, for others, for younger people, hopefully uh, they'll have an easier time. Uh, school is hard anyway. <laughs> By the way, yeah. as you yeah, talked cool. about math, as you talked about math, I thought, and I, I do not have any dyslexia as far as I know, but when you put calculus in front of me, I run the other way. But when you confront that and then you confront the social and environmental pressures, it, it can be a lot for a kid. So it's nice to know that by sharing your story with us and with others, uh, you're you know, helping people through the, their troubles. So before we wrap up, let's talk about what you do on a daily basis, visiting assistant professor at the University of Connecticut, the NEAG School of Education. Why don't you just talk a little bit about what you do there? Sure. So um, I am, as you said, an assistant professor at NEAG. I train future school counselors that will be school counselors. They'll be certified to um, work in public schools in Connecticut. My research interests um, really involve what type of support systems in the K-12 and post-secondary environment will are necessary or and or helpful for individuals with disabilities. Mm. Um, I'm also interested in le- looking at how school counselors can be better trained to help students in the 504 process. And, um, you know, what is the school counselor's role in the 504 process? I think that that varies far too much across schools and across and um among states. And would you tell us again, for those who don't know, 504 meaning what? So in K-12 education, there, if a student has a learning challenge, they're either put on an IEP, which is an individualized education plan, or it's called a 504 plan. Right. Uh, a 504 plan differs slightly in that it's less individualized and sometimes just a bit more modified. School counselors a lot of times are put in charge of uh, implementing 504 plans. I would argue that they need a different sort of training, probably more special education training, more knowledge about special education than um, some are currently getting. I also think that there needs to be uh, more understanding of what should a 504 plan do for different students. Mm -hmm. Well, you're doing what you were sort of destined to do, in a sense, but I can tell that you're enjoying the the challenge, and giving back is always a positive for any of us. Thank you for sharing a bit of your story and being so honest about it, which is what we need. We need truth. We need honesty. Thank you. Thank you very much. 
Thanks once again for listening to Dyslexics Wanted. We're seeking personal stories about your dyslexia journey and would love to hear from you. If you or someone you care about have a story to tell, we would consider featuring it on this podcast. Send the story to me, Jordan, that's J-O-R-D-A-N, Jordan at chartproductions.com. Chart is spelled C-H-A-R-T. We'd love to hear from you. Remember to subscribe, download, rate, and review this podcast, available on all major web platforms. And once again, for much more, visit WICD.org. That's WICD.org.